0: Hi, I'm Dave Miranda, general counsel and past president of the New York State Bar Association. Welcome to Miranda Warnings. You have the right to remain listening. This week on Miranda Warnings, we're very pleased to have Honorable Albert M. Rosenblatt, former associate judge of the New York Court of Appeals. Welcome, Judge Rosenblatt. Happy to be here. Great to have you with us. Uh, Judge Rosenblatt served on the Court of Appeals from 1999 to 2007, and currently teaches at NYU School of Law. And he's the author of The Eight, The Lemon Slave Case and the Fight for Freedom. And Judge, I'm so happy that you're with us here today, but also happy that you put the time and effort into researching and and writing uh, this book about this very important case in, in New York's history. Uh, it's a very compelling book. Uh, I think it read a little bit like it could be a movie. The case exemplifies New York's legal stand against slavery just before the Civil War, during the years of 1852 to 1860. And I think it would be really great just to get started, Judge, to, uh, before we get into the legal issues, just a little background about the, the facts of the case.
1: Yeah. Well, it's nice to see the book right next to your left elbow. So it's right in hand. Yes, and uh, right here. Uh, the, the uh, SUNY press put it out and they did a fine job with the pictures and uh, the layout. And I'm, I'm very pleased with the way they, they put it all together. Uh, I had begun uh, my interest in the case when uh, on the New York Court of Appeals, The people in the building on Eagle Street in Albany were we were all faintly aware of the Lemon Slave case, but we didn't know too much about it. We sort of had the we sort of had the uh, the faint idea that uh, we got it right and that the result in the Lemon Slave case was the opposite of the result that at least in dictum was in the Dred Scott case by the US Supreme Court. And uh, latching on to an interest in the case, I decided to actually read it. Uh, It's not easy reading because in this day's, uh, today's writing, we value and we emphasize clarity. Uh, The writing in those days was much more prosaic and uh, more difficult to get through with phrases upon phrases in the syntax. But I did get through it and I understood what was going on. And shortly, after that became interested in the real people, recognizing that this case is not a mere legal abstraction, but it's about people. And their quest was to become people from their former status of inanimate chattel objects that could be traded, sold, mortgaged, bartered, or inherited.
0: Yeah, so let's let's talk—before we get it, I want to get into the legal issues, but before we do, let's talk about the facts of the case, because some of us are familiar with it. Uh, it's uh, a, a fascinating uh, factual circumstance. This is—the uh, the Lemon Slave case involves individuals, the Lemons, who were slaveholders in Virginia. They were moving, and they stop off with their slaves— in New York, and they have to change ships. And at the time, this is 1852, Virginia's a slave state. Louisiana is a slave state. New York is a free state. And in New York, uh, they recognize the fact that other states have slaves, but in New York, they don't recognize the fact that they're slaves. And so the, the lemons and take their whole all their possessions, including their slaves, up to New York. Uh, they have to change ships. They're there for, I don't know, overnight, a few hours. And then then, Judge, tell us uh, tell us what happens.
1: You're exactly on the mark. Thanks for that uh, condensed, good little factual account. They left Virginia uh, on their way to Texas, which beckoned. Uh, there were 17 of them, nine of the Lemon family, white slave owners and the eight enslaved. Uh, They were heading for Texas because Texas offered land and uh, uh, open slavery, and uh, because of a hitch in the travel plans, as you pointed out, by the time they got to Richmond, from which they were about to go south to New Orleans and then to Texas, the vessel left from Richmond, and the people in Richmond said, well, you missed the boat to New Orleans, and you can't get to Texas that way, but If you go to Norfolk and there to New York, there's a steamer leaving more often. And you can go from New York to Louisiana to Texas. So on the steamer, on the way, they were all piled in uh, steerage, except the family, the white family, of course. And in steerage, a young man named Nathan Lobham approaches them, the eight of them, in steerage. And he says, Uh, do you folks folks wanna be free? And this jarred the younger boys and the two moms, Emma, 23, and Nancy, 18, which tells you something about the age uh, of uh, conception and and birth among the slavery women population.
0: And those two women kind of led the group of eight, right? The the, the 23-year-old and the 18-year-old. Exactly,
1: the two moms were in charge. 23, em, Emmeline was older, the, uh, uh, she was either 16 or 18, Nancy uh, was the uh, second mom, and the rest were kids, which meant they couldn't be of use to the family in farming because the women were pregnant, often is not, and the rest of them were not sturdy enough to operate a farm or to help operate a farm. So uh, the, the two moms say, okay, yes, We're going to take our chances to be free. So when they get to New York, Nathan Lobham, who was a steward on board the vessel that had been coming from Norfolk to New York, sends out three messages. One to a restaurant populated by African-American people. A second to... Louis Napoleon, who was a conductor on the Underground Railroad and who made a job and a life of getting thousands of people from fugitive status onto the Underground Railroad over to Canada, from which the terminus was often as not Buxton, Canada. And the third message went to a lawyer. Lord knows how Nathan Lobham knew who to send this to, but he sent it to a spirited, enterprising rockam sockam lawyer named erastus culver and when the three messages got out lewis napoleon and culver immediately that was a saturday morning went over to what was then the superior court of the city of new york they found judge elijah payne on duty saturday morning and they went in and they asked them for a writ of habeas corpus uh, Culver drafted it, and Louis Napoleon signed the writ with an X. We have these papers, and they are extraordinary. It's almost enough to bring tears to your eyes to realize that Louis Napoleon was able to do this, make these allegations with an X. The judge, of course, signed the writ, which means only that the judge ordered that everyone appear before him in order to inquire into the habeas corpus process, which is to test the uh, uh, to to contest the imprisonment, confinement, whatever you want to call it. In this case, it was enslavement. So Elijah Payne signs the writ, and within a day or so, everyone is before Judge Payne, and he had to decide an issue that had never been decided before in the United States. What jurisdiction and power does a New York court have to appropriate and confiscate slaves that were brought into New York on their way south? And uh, that was the issue before Judge Payne. And the case was very much celebrated it was in all the newspapers in the North and South. Everyone was avidly watching it. The courtroom was full, uh, largely with African-American people, as to what is going to be the fate of these eight eight people.
0: There's a couple of things in there that I'd like to get into. First of all, fascinating to me that you said they sent messages, but they arrive in New York Harbor, and then immediately the abolitionists somehow get word and spring to action in a matter of hours. I mean, there was no obviously no text messaging uh, at that time, right? They didn't make a phone call. They sent couriers out, and they sprung to action, went to court, and then explain a little bit, because this was fascinating in the book, explain a little bit how they actually intervened with the Lemons and their slaves to actually serve the papers on them and, and get them to court. Right,
1: you're, you're quite right, David. It's a, it's marvelous and extraordinary to think that without text messages and email, the messages reached uh, Erastus Culver, who was a very energetic lawyer and Louis Napoleon. We're not sure of the role that was played in the African-American restaurant, but the word went out on the street and that was probably uh, to the benefit of the enterprise. Uh, So when they uh, got before uh, Judge Payne, he uh, signed the writ and directed that a constable execute the writ, which means to go to the location at which the eight slaves were and the owners to find them and bring them all before the court. Fortunately, we have uh, an authentic minute-by-minute account of what happened, because after the war was over, by some miracle, we're able to find Erastus Culver's talk before a group that he gave describing how the writ was executed on that day after he was armed with it and went over to uh, Carlisle Street, where the uh, eight enslaved were on the bottom floor in a Dutch bakery. And Culver describes what happens. They go in and they're accompanied by a police officer and the police officer gets a little rough with the people, uh, you know, and uh, started acting a little bossy. And Culver said, calm down, these are our clients. So we want you to respect them. I'm taking care of them and you behave. He's talking that way to the police officer. He then says, goes over to Nancy who is frightened to death And he goes over to Nancy, the mom, the 16, 18-year-old mom. And he says, Nancy, we're your friends. We're here to help you. And then he says, Nancy, then recognizing the situation, stood up and marched straight as a Connecticut rolling pin down to the courthouse. So I had to look up, what is a Connecticut rolling pin? Well, apparently he meant, you know, stiff as straight, marching down to the courthouse, getting before Judge Payne. And on the other hand, the lemon owners got before Judge Payne, and the lawyers for both sides at that point took over. Two very prominent lawyers for the lemons, the slave owners, and two very prominent lawyers for the slaves, namely Erastus Culver and John Jay II, who was the grandson of the founder.
0: So, so now they're in court, right? And they're, we'll talk a little bit about the legal issues, but was what was so fascinating to me was placing this case in the continuum of what's going on in our country, right? So right. this is 1852, the Lemon case begins. Um, New York State abolished slavery in 1827. Right. Um, it did, at, at least initially, permit slaveholders from other states to bring in their slaves and keep them in New York for a period of up to nine months. But then in the 1840s, New York specifically revoked that rule, and this becomes significant later. Um, and then in 1850, the federally, they passed the Fugitive Slave Act, which is if a slave escapes and is a fugitive to another state, that's a free state, the st- the slave has to be returned. They can't go and have uh, be free in another state if they escape. And that law would seemingly prevent New York from taking action um, in favor of these individuals who were slaves. But uh, there is a very unique uh, approach to it that uh, you know we can talk about. So let's talk a little bit about. So they're in court. And, and what are the issues that the, the judge is presented with?
1: Well, before the uh, actual case began, uh, there was an episode that uh, renders what this case could be described as uh, an adventure story. As they're sitting there, the two moms on one side of the courtroom with infants at their breasts and the Lemon owners on the other side, Juliet Lemon the owner, walks over to Emmeline and Nancy and she says to them just before the judge comes out on the bench, why are you doing this to us? You're our only asset. Why are you leaving us? Aren't we one big happy family? And when we read these words today, we're just in in complete awe as to that a woman could actually believe that enslavement is better than freedom as we live in in our world today. And Emmeline uh, started to cry because she knew only enslavement. And here's her owner who had complete dominance over her up through that minute saying, don't leave. So she's torn on the one hand of getting a plea, being implored by someone who had total subjugation over her And on the other hand, what may have been a notion to process the idea of freedom, and in the news accounts, some reporters heard this, and some news accounts said, no, we're not one happy family, you sold my husband away from me. Now we don't know whether Juliet Lemon did it or whether the others did it, but that was in her mind and she says no. And in the book I said well. She's taking her chances with the judge. Maybe she saw something uh, in Judge Payne's eyes earlier if she happened to see him, but we, we just don't know. Or maybe by then he was out on the bench, uh, but she decided to go and risk, uh, uh, and risk the result because if the judge ruled the other way, she would have to go back to a very angry owner.
0: Yeah, so so I, I think that was a very compelling part of the book, uh, very dramatic, and of course you know obviously these these uh, Emmeline and and the others, there was a lot at stake here, right? So if they and nobody knew how this case was going to turn out, uh, and if they were not successful, now they're going back as rebellious slaves they're not going back even if the situation they had maybe wasn't as horrendous as as others um may have had in the south they were uh you know they were now going to go back to most likely worse conditions than they had before but as Emmeline said at the time they said didn't we treat you well and she said no you sold my husband i don't consider that to be treating me well right and so uh, yeah, but you know, part of that is just the, you know, when you hear the lemon saying, you know, kind of shocked that anyone wouldn't want to be their slave, uh, just the lack of awareness and respect for humanity that was
1: prevalent. Incredible that that conversation could be held. That Juliet could actually put the case to Emmeline, saying, "Aren't you better off?" enslaved. It's just, it's just staggering to uh, consider that in today's world.
0: Right. So, and, and so that's the beginning. That's just before the trial begins. She says, no, we're going to take our chances with this, right. with this judge. And uh, then they go in and w- what are the issues that are, that are argued by these, you know, uh, extremely capable lawyers on both sides? Yeah. Uh,
1: it was, uh a law issue so that there were no factual issues to be determined at the trial. The facts were known and agreed on, not that they had to stipulate, but everyone knew what the facts were. Sure. there was only one uh, maybe factual question that was at the heart of it. And as we read the record, it's just as amazing to read Judge Elijah Payne's astuteness because as you pointed out earlier, The Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was one of the ugliest pieces of legislation ever uh, enacted by the United States Congress. Not only did it require the northern states to give back slaves, but it required northerners to help catch the slaves. And they were brought before federal commissioners who were paid twice as much money if they found for the slave owner than if they found for the enslaved. So that's the statute out there. Uh, So as they're making their arguments, the slave owners, lawyers, two very prominent uh, respected uh, lawyers were saying, well, New York has no right to do this. New York cannot take property of people who had legal title in Virginia. New York has no jurisdiction to it. To do it. It's against full faith and credit. It's against the Comity Clause. It's against the uh, uh, Commerce Clause. And it's against uh, the right of ownership of Virginians. The uh, other side, uh, this Culver and John Jay said that uh, New York does not recognize property in human beings. And while this argument is going on, Judge Payne asks a question, three words. And when I read it, I thought, oh my goodness, this guy is so sharp. He said, counsel, were they escaping? In other words, he's thinking, am I bound by the Fugitive Slave Act? because if they're not escaping, I'm not bound by the Fugitive Slave Act and I can make a ruling independent of the Fugitive Slave Act and based on the New York statute by which the nine month sojourning period was stricken, meaning that when enslaved people set foot in New York, nine months minus nine months is zero so that they become free when setting foot on New York soil. And when Payne asked, were they escaping? I thought, aha, that was, a, that was telegraphing to me anyway, uh, where he's going.
0: So, so the Fugitive Slave Act, as you indicated, required uh, even free states to go through the effort of uh, returning a slave who had escaped from a slave state and return them back to their owners. And this was 1850. Uh, you know, I, obviously that's probably not something that most of the free states wanted there were a, there was a lot of federal legislation at the time that was done as a compromise to keep the union intact and they said well we don't like this but we'll do it so that we can keep the, the keeping the union intact is the, the exactly. most important that
1: was, thing that was part of the compromise of 1850. and uh as you point out the northern states were not happy with it, and some of the states passed what they call personal liberty laws, state statutes to fight the federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. For example, uh, I'll just be brief on this, but it's so uh, critical to what was going on in the country. The Chicago City Council said, we're not going to cooperate with the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, we're not going to obstruct, because we're not going to block federal law, but we are instructing the police department not to lift the pinky to help the Federals catch slaves. Police, stand down, don't give any help, um, any assistance, whatever, in catching any slaves. And online, uh, I was able to access the Chicago City Council Minutes of 1850, uh, in which they made that, uh, that directive. Isn't that amazing?
0: That is, a, that is amazing. There are so many uh, just fascinating and courageous uh, acts that took place uh, in this book, especially when you think about the time that, we're, we're, that we were in uh, then and what was going on in the country. So the Lemons, so the, the loophole here that the, the judge finds is that the, lem- the the slaves were not fugitive slaves. The Lemons took them to New York voluntarily, uh and so they said so the we have to apply the law we have to apply federal law uh the fugitive slave act but it does not apply now because they they're not they were not fugitives they were brought here by you voluntarily
1: exactly exactly so
0: and then they say well let's look at what we recognize that Virginia can make whatever laws it wants but the laws of Virginia don't travel around the world. The laws of Virginia stay in Virginia. And now you're in New York. And let's look at what New York did. And they, you know, they talk about the repeal of that law that said you can have, your, have a slave for a period of up to nine months. That was specifically debated in the New York legislature previously and repealed. So the court can say then, in New York, we've considered this. And in New York, we say not for a minute, not for a minute can you have a slave in New York because if you can have it for a minute, you could have it forever. And precisely,
1: and- precisely, non-fugitives,
0: precisely. Not, fug- not fugitives. And then so the ruling of the court is that they're, uh, these eight are free.
1: Right, he uses the words they're discharged at that point. Louis Napoleon swings into action and Reverend, Pen, Reverend Pen, Pennington swings into action. Louis Napoleon was an African American, as was Pennington. And that emphasizes the point that uh, the abolitionists consisted, of course, in part, in good part, of white elitists, but it also had a sizable, active uh, African American component. And the, the blacks were uh, energetic politically and in the churches, socially, culturally in helping the abolition movement. So Reverend Pennington and Napoleon, Louis Napoleon helped the eight get on the Underground Railroad from New York and gets them through New York State to Buxton, Canada, where they disappear from the public record uh, after maybe a year of correspondence between the Buxton people and John Jay II, who sent money up uh, to help them along, the last we hear of them officially is in about 1853, and that's where my research sort of began. Uh, so far as they're concerned,
0: right, right. So, so it's interesting. Obviously. Uh, there's an appeal right we're going to talk about that because this was just at the trial level court there's a mid-level appeal and and then it goes to the court of appeals but that takes you know the first appeal takes takes five years then there's another couple of years but this the the lemon slaves they're out they're not waiting around for the appeal they right. go they go to canada and i just thought I was, you know, when I'm reading, i like, I'd like to know what happened to them. And then you say, well, you know, they, they there was a letter and then they never heard from them again. And I'm like, well, I'm not really surprised. Right. I don't know why they would want to keep in touch. Right. So now another
1: interesting feature, uh, David, was that uh, uh, when the court rules that the slaves be confiscated and discharged, <clears throat> the merchants of New York felt so sorry for the lemon owners that they raised $5,500, which is a huge sum of money, to compensate the owners for the loss of their slaves. This says something about New York's ambivalence about about abolition. Uh, By and large, I'm going to guess, we don't know, that if uh, if there was a plebiscite, Uh, a vote taken throughout New York, probably more people would be against slavery. But the business interests in New York City were uh, in favor of keeping uh, good business rapport with Southern product, uh, cotton uh, products, banking, finance, manufacturing, retailing, loaning and lending and the like. And they wanted to keep uh, 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 business uh, relations with the South. So they gave money to the Lemons.
0: Right. They, they took won. up a collection. And I thought it was right. fast. That, that was also interesting because they were not supportive of this case. They're thinking, oh, if if this is going to be the standard, then states like Virginia, who we do a lot of commerce with, right. are not going to want to come to New York at all. They're exactly. not, they are not only are they not going to bring their slaves, they're not going to bring any of their, Products, they're not going to do anything with New York. And again, this is leading up to the Civil War. There was a lot of, you know, hostilities, uh, I think, right. between the Northern and Southern states. And so those that were in commerce really, like always, they don't want to get involved in the politics. They just want to keep the, the commerce going. And so, yeah. I mean, you talk about in the book that they raised like twice as much as these slaves. Uh, would have been worth on the market uh, at the time, and well, not twice
1: as much, but more. Uh, yeah. right. the, well, the some of the uh, local critics were thinking that the the amount of money they paid the lemons was more than somewhat more than market value.
0: So the lemons uh, are happy.
1: The yeah, lemons they're are so happy they
0: never got to Texas. They went back to Virginia. They said, "We got all this money. We're going back to Virginia." Yeah. Uh, the 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 oh, eight oh. slaves go to Canada. Right. So. Why Why does this case go on? The Lemons move on. The slaves, former slaves move on. You'd think the case would be moot.
1: Exactly. And now you're talking like a lawyer. And this is what <laughs> even non-lawyers would say. Wait a minute. The parties are gone. Who's aggrieved? Well, right. Virginia comes marching in saying we're aggrieved. We, Virginia, are aggrieved because that means that we're not able to bring slaves to New York for five minutes, even to go through New York. And the same would be true of North Carolina and Georgia and the other uh, South Carolina and the other uh, uh, slave states. So Virginia comes in and says to the middle middle appeals court, we want to have standing to appeal, Judge Payne's ruling. And uh, there was a dispute over that. Arrestus Culver writes an affidavit saying, why don't you go back and mind your own business and stop harassing us and stop trying to arrest people for teaching slaves how to read? Because Virginia passed a statute that said it's a crime to teach a slave how to read. So he was needling them and he was objecting to their even having standing. But the New York judges... um, I guess being circumspect and thinking, well, truth is Virginia really does have standing. And out of, I guess, a sense of proportion or whatever, the New York uh, Middle Appeals Court says, yes, you can come in and you can appeal. Five years go by, hard to explain why. Uh, Maybe Virginia was in no hurry to appeal because they might've been happy that this is one state and that, uh, as far as in the other states, no one bought into Judge Payne's ruling, and they figured maybe they could live with one uh, lemon case, and they'll just leave leave things alone. Then uh, a couple of other states, Ohio and Maine, adopted Judge Payne's ruling by statute. And then, as the heat as the war heated up, Virginia maybe felt a little more impetus to appeal, so they appealed in 1857 and they go to what is now the appellate division, and they made the case uh, for a reversal. Uh, But the appellate division, uh, which was then called General Term, wrote a beautiful one-page decision saying, look, you know, we're not gonna swing for the fences. We have a statute. Statute said in 1841, we're gonna strike the phrase nine months, very good, goodbye, next case. So that was the aptive ruling.
0: Right, in 1857, another significant decision comes down in the country, which is the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott. That goes to the I, U.S. Supreme Court. Yes. S- similar issues?
1: Yes, Dred Scott came down before the aptive decided the case. And to my utter amazement, the lawyers for Virginia, which at that time was, was uh, o- O'Connor, who was one of the uh, most eminent lawyers in America, barely cited the Dred Scott case. I have some theories as to why, but uh, O'Connor was a a lawyer of towering eminence, and just a one-liner about Dred Scott, you'd think he'd be beating the drum, but barely a word. The Aptiv didn't even mention it in their decision uh, and the other side barely even mentioned
0: it at all. But it's 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 inter- the strategy is interesting, and you do go into the strategy of the parties in the book, and some of it. I mean, obviously, you take liberties because you don't know exactly what they were thinking. But you know, Dred Scott was an enormous decision facing the whole country at the at that exact right. time, and you know, in that case, what was interesting to me about that was, you know, the ruling was that the the individual who was the slave was considered by the supreme court not to be a person to be able to bring a case right. and so they so that's the threshold decision and then there's all this other dicta in the case right. which would have an impact on certainly this case in new york and would uh potentially uh you know overrule what what happened in New York. But there was a legal question in there. Is that if they say we're not going to get to it on on procedural grounds because of that ruling uh, initially, then all the dicta that would apply wouldn't necessarily apply. And so you, you, you go into a little bit of the back and forth about what the thought process of the council were. They didn't want to push the envelope on Dred Scott because right. they weren't sure where oh. they would end up.
1: Well said, David. That's exactly right. Uh, not a lot of people realize that Dred Scott uh, was Dred Scott turned on a jurisdictional issue. Namely, they found that Dred Scott had no capacity to sue. In order to bring a case in the federal court, you had to you had to have one citizen of one state bringing the action. They said he cannot be a citizen. He's not a person. He had no capacity to sue. They could have ended the decision right there. And indeed, that's all that's necessary. The rest of the 50 pages that blacks are not human beings and that uh, and so forth, that's all dicta. And maybe that's why O'Connor didn't raise it, because he felt he could get drawn into a rabbit hole as to what is dicta and what is not. We'll never know. He was a very, very smart guy. And I can only speculate as to why he didn't uh, come charging in with Dred Scott.
0: And the attorneys on the New York side were also... Uh, concerned about Dred Scott, even, even despite this, because they felt if this case goes up to the su- Supreme Court, we're going right. to lose. We're going to lose. So maybe we should just hold it here, not continue the appeals. Right. Uh, and let's not push this, because if it gets up to the Supreme Court, we're going to lose. And there was a, what someone made a motion to say that the appeal was
1: moot. Moot. Right. Uh, Jay uh, John Jay made three or four motions. He did not want this case decided. He wanted it dismissed on mootness grounds because he knew that if it went up to the top court in New York, and even if New York were to affirm, it would go to the United States Supreme Court. That's the court that gave us Dred Scott, and there was little doubt in his mind and little doubt in the minds of most analysts that the US Supreme Court would drop the other shoe. And even Lincoln, in, his, in one of his speeches, alluded to the fact that, that the Lemon case could be the second shoe dropping after Dred Scott. So uh, the abolitionists did not want this case anywhere near the United States Supreme Court. Why it was never appealed by Virginia after the New York Court of Appeals affirmed, is still a complete mystery to me.
0: Well, let's talk about that because I thought that was also fascinating, right. right? So, so it gets to the Court of Appeals, eighteen sixty, right? right. Eighteen sixty. We're on the right. cusp. We're on the cusp of the Civil War, right? Right. And uh, Court of Appeals affirms, right? Um, and so. Virginia now has the chance to to bring it up to the Supreme Court, where they're going to have presumably a favorable, a oh. favorable court, right? Yeah. But, but here, and you don't, I mean, you. this is maybe outside the book, but maybe Virginia wants to be aggrieved, right? I mean, we're looking at what's going on in the South. They're complaining. We can't get our rights. We can't, we can't, live the way we want to live leave us alone if they go up to the supreme court and the supreme court reverses new york and says you know what we're going to continue with the whole dred scott uh decision and we're going to reverse new york now virginia and the rest of the south is not aggrieved and they have a little bit less to complain about there were people in in virginia and other states that were itching for to point out how you know, how oppressive the North was to them. What do you think oh, of that, Jeff? What a,
1: what a good point that is. That's a marvelous point, David, because after the New York Court of Appeals affirmed the discharge of the slaves in the spring of 1860, several months later, South Carolina secedes and says, they give several reasons. And for one of the reasons they say, you see, In New York, we can't, look what they're doing to us in New York. Right, right. So they were blaming New York and the Lemon case as one of the reasons for seceding. Maybe the South wanted to harp on that so that the other states might feel aggrieved and then fire the shots at Fort Sumter. Uh, Yeah, could be, could be. Um, Hard to say. There were probably others who would want the case reversed uh, so that they could do that. We don't know. But uh, for some reason, Virginia didn't appeal. We'll never know why. Right. I uh, contacted uh, the uh, Library of Congress and asked them whether there was any appeal ever filed. And they said no. Then I contacted Virginia for Governor, Virginia Governor Letcher's office. And they said, there's nothing in Governor Letcher's papers about the Lemon case. So we just don't
0: know. So I want to so a fascinating case uh, I think played a great role in you know our nation's history at that time uh as you said New York was on the right side uh at the time and the the uh, US Supreme Court was not um uh, but there's a little bit of a postscript so part of your research part of your research you find uh some of the descendants of these uh, eight. Yeah, that's
1: a fascinating chapter for me. It was so exciting. Uh, when I had virtually completed the book, uh, I had called uh, the historian, the historian in Buxton, Canada, who has more records of the uh, people that came to Buxton than anyone. His name is uh, Brian, Brian Prince. And I asked, uh, I asked Brian, who's a great historian and he has the Buxton uh, Museum, uh, can you tell me about the Lemon Slave case and what became of them? And he said, oh, of course I know the Lemon Slave case. I said, is there any chance that you know what became of any of the eight? And he said, oh no, that's, that's, that's just too hard. Well, we just don't know. They just you know, disappeared into the population. Uh, And then about a year or so went by, and I was about to send the book off to the publisher. And uh, I contacted him again and said, "Uh, can you look again? I'm about to send the book off to the publisher. Can you give me a sliver of a hint of a hint of a sliver of a sliver of a clue of a hint as to what may have happened? And he says, gets back to me and he says, well, I have reason to think that one of the eight, the five-year-old twin boy, I think he wound up in Lansing, Michigan. Well, now I only have 372, whatever, Lewis writes in Michigan. And with the internet, census, marriage records, birth records, Michigan marriage records, I was able to identify and to nail the identity of Lewis Wright and said, this is the guy, this was the five-year-old boy born in Virginia, uh, everything added up and was able to identify the five-year-old. He was the only one of the eight. Having identified the five-year-old, then uh, was able through census records, uh, voting records, uh, marriage records, birth records, death records, I was able to go forward seven generations to today and found uh, who this person's descendant was in Lansing today and reached out for them.
0: Well, that must have been very gratifying for, for, for both of you, both for, yeah. for you and for the, for the descendant. I know you have a lot of acknowledgments, but you did ask me to make sure that we mentioned the Historical Society of the New York Courts, uh, oh, right? For both for their assistance to you and for connecting us, which I'm so oh, glad. Yeah. I'm so glad they did. So, so Judge Rosenblatt, I want to thank you for being on with us on Miranda warnings, for talking about this fascinating case, and also for the time and effort and tremendous research that you did. Uh, on this book, which I I just loved and I recommend to lawyers and to non-lawyers alike. Thank you so much. This has been Miranda Warnings, a New York State Bar Association podcast. You have the right to subscribe, rate, and review.